We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. Our guest today is the legendary, the incomparable Mark Bittman. For 30 plus years, he's been hands down the most influential food writer in America. He worked as a star food columnist at the New York Times. He's written 16 best-selling books and cookbooks, including How to Cook Everything, How to Cook Everything Vegetarian, and The Minimalist Cooks at Home. His latest book is Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. It isn't a cookbook. You won't find any recipes in it. Instead, it's an ambitious and clear-eyed survey of the past, present, and future of agriculture. From the advent of farming over 10,000 years ago to the rise of industrial agriculture and hyper-processed junk food, Bittman somehow manages to synthesize thousands of years of history into a thoughtful and convincing argument for radical change within our modern food system. And although it isn't a cookbook, I wouldn't say the book is a departure from his past work. Rather, it's the culmination and the crowning achievement to a life dedicated to teaching people how to cook and eat ethically, healthfully, and with pleasure. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, a word about our sponsor. I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Mark Bittman really has two distinct phases of his career. The first phase is Mark Bittman, the cookbook guy. I remember back when I was a college student living on my own for the first time in the late 1990s, and his thousand-page masterwork, How to Cook Everything, was my ticket to self-sufficiency. And I still sometimes consult it today, along with some of his other books. The recipes just work really well. They aren't fussy or pretentious. That was the first part of his career, demystifying cooking for millions of Americans. For the last few years, Bittman has become more outspoken as a climate activist and as a critic of our industrialized, inequitable, and often toxic food industry. His new book, Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal, is a whirlwind tour of the evolution of agriculture and its many baked-in problems. Of all the now countless books on our failing food system, I really think this is the one to read. It might just change the way you think about food and farming. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark Bittman. Welcome, Mark. Great to be here, Ben. There's this popular narrative that agriculture really went off the rails in the post-war era with the widespread use of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. But really, agriculture has been creating problems essentially from day one. 
In the book, you cite the historian Jared Diamond, who called agriculture the worst mistake in the history of the human race. Was agriculture fatally flawed from the beginning? I mean, it kind of depends on your perspective, because let's say we don't know how many people were on Earth when when people started doing agriculture, which is about 10,000 years ago. But let's say there were 50 million. I mean, it could be 5 million. It could be 100 million. It's somewhere in that range. There's now seven going on 10 billion. Very few of those lives between then and now would have been possible. Those incremental lives would not have been possible without agriculture. If there are hunter-gatherers, everybody's a hunter-gatherer, there's a really small number of people that could live on the earth. So if you value 7 billion lives, and I think most of us do, if you value the right of we 7 billion, because chances are we would have not gotten to be alive, then it's not such a bad thing. It's just that at every turning point, and it did cause difficulties from the beginning, it wasn't good. It, it may not have been a good decision for that generation or for the next 20 generations, whatever, but it was a good decision for us because we get to be here. But the thing is that at many turning points between then and now, the better decisions could have been made. And they weren't. And maybe worse decisions could have been made also. But the decisions that got made got made. And certainly things have gotten progressively worse after World War II. They got progressively worse after World War I. They got progressively worse after the Civil War. There's been this cascading worsening of the effects of agriculture. You know, and we're now sitting at a place where we have the ability to do things better. And the question is, are we going to do things better or are we going to keep reinforcing the bad decisions that have been made? In the book, you cite geologist and author David Montgomery, um, who's a friend of, of this show and has been on the show. And you cite him when you're talking about the role of soil health in sustaining civilizations. And some civilizations throughout history appear to have had more of a knack for it than others. Um, talk about some of the triumphs and failures of agriculture throughout history. I mean, I think you you offer a really beautiful synthesis of the history of early agriculture, but I think it's really important for us to understand. David's probably better at this than I am. I'm not saying I, I'm not not answering your question. I'm just saying there are better experts than me. But, you know, you look at Sumer, which was the sort of one of the first civilizations in Mesopotamia, and they were thriving. Their population was increasing. Their wealth was increasing. They had art. They had math. They had all kinds of science, interesting things, commerce. And they kept expanding and expanding, and they, they stopped paying attention to soil health. And when they stopped paying attention to soil health, the canals filled with silt, the irrigation systems were inadequate. The soil itself stopped yielding. I mean, one of the things about agriculture is, I'll, I'll come back to this, but one of the things about agriculture is that it provides more food, at least initially. By providing more food, it supports population growth. And farmers, as you know, like to have children because they're free labor. I mean, this is not necessarily the case now, but historically it has been the case. But with more food came more people, with more people came more people to work the land, with more people to work the land came more food and so on. But you and your listeners know this better than I do, the land can only produce so much before it needs to rest or be fed or whatever. You can't just keep withdrawing 
capital from your soil, you have to replenish your soil. If your population's growing and your territory is not expanding and you're not fallowing or otherwise allowing your soil to replenish, your yields go down and suddenly you're screwed. You have more people with less production and unhealthy soil to boot. So your civilization literally collapses. And that has happened repeatedly. So the most successful civilization, I think it's fair to say the most successful civilization, consistent civilization history was probably Egypt or or maybe China. And both really mastered sustainable agriculture for literally thousands of years. And for different reasons. I mean, China is kind of hard because they've been different dynasties and it's geographically has been amorphous and so on. But Egypt was this like, pretty well-defined place that for 3,000 years managed to not only sustain itself, but thrive enough so that it could waste money. Technically, it's a waste of money to do public works projects like build huge tombs for one guy. I mean, the, the pyramids are really cool and we're glad they're there. But I mean, I hate to think that people were worked to death or starved as a result of building those pyramids. But there was this guy who, who David probably came across early in his career. He and I have only talked once, so I don't I don't know him well, but there was this guy named, I can never remember his first name. I think it might've been Walter, but anyway, his last name was Loudermilk. This guy, Loudermilk. And Loudermilk always talked about, and he was like in the thirties, and he always talked about agricultural suicide. And by agricultural suicide, he meant that process that I just talked about of increasing population and expecting your soil to just yield more and more and more. And it's an impossibility. It's not a, it defies the laws of physics to expect your soil to just permanently yield more. And, you know, we're up against that a little bit now. It's not one of our major, yield is not one of our major problems in U.S. industrial agriculture. But depletion of soil is one of our major problems. And, and again, you and your listeners know this way better than I, than I do. But if you go to places, corn and soybean states, and you look at that soil, that is really awful looking soil. That is like dead soil that exists for one purpose. And that purpose is to grow corn or soybeans. And it can be chemically doused year after year after year to to keep it up. I don't know how long that can go on because every year there's more topsoil depletion and every year there are fewer natural nutrients in that in that soil. But so far yield has not is not really our, our major problem. I do think that soil health in general and soil depletion are big problems here. Right. Um, you write in the book, and this is a quote, agriculture has had a dark side. It sparked disputes over land ownership, water use, and the extraction of resources. It's driven exploitation and injustice, slavery, and war. It's even paradoxically enough created disease and famine. There's a lot to talk about there, but slavery in particular has been intertwined with agriculture for thousands of years. And why are those two things so closely linked throughout our history? I mean, I think this in particular is, is a really informative lens for looking at sort of how agriculture has developed into what it is today. If you if you argued that the two most successful from an accumulation of wealth point of view, his civilizations in history have been Rome and the United States, both of their wealth was founded on slavery. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And slavery in the modern era really tracked the westward movement of sugar. 
that was really a kind of parallel development that as sugar moved west, slavery moved west from the Far East to the Middle East, through the Mediterranean, through the Atlantic, through the Caribbean and North and South America. Sugar is very, very land intensive, so it it uses up land quickly. Cane is very nutrient demanding and it's labor intensive and it's labor no one wants to do. No one voluntarily does sugar labor, almost no one. So if you wanted to produce sugar and the world became addicted to sugar really, really fast, then you wanted to have slaves if you could. And and that development was really, really parallel and came to the new world. Sugar and slaves came to the new world together. And, you know, sugar wasn't the only thing uh, and, and slavery wasn't the only thing. There was these kind of nefarious triangles between the so-called mother country, countries in West Africa and countries in the Caribbean and in, in North and South America. But sugar... Rum, molasses, tools, slaves, weaponry, manufactured goods in general, that sort of triangle lasted for, what, 300 years, even more. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm not actually in the habit of sitting here just citing sources, but there's a book called The Half Has Never Been Told, which is a story, and this is by a guy named Edward, Edward Baptiste, just such an amazing book about the foundation of wealth in North America. And it's not just Mississippi, which was once the richest country, the richest state in the country and is now the poorest. And that's not a coincidence. The wealth of this country was built on the on the backs of enslaved people and on even on the backs of non-enslaved but underpaid and nearly enslaved Asians and indigenous people and and so on who were brought to this country to to build its wealth. But slavery was really the foundation of wealth in the United States. And that's all about agriculture. I mean, that is 95% about agriculture. Another issue that you mentioned in the book is famine. And the Irish potato famine is maybe the most famous one in the West, but it's hardly unique. And as you say in the book, hunger is not a symptom of underproduction, but of inequality, of abusive power and wealth. What do famines tell us about some of the structural failures of agriculture? I mean, the thing is that the Irish potato famine was the first modern famine, and that's that's why it's most famous. And in this sense, what we mean by modern is that it's not really a shortage of food. It's a it's a lack of political will, or in fact, it's starvation as a political tool or as a weapon of war. So the British did not engineer that famine, but they did not engineer the end of it either, which was in their power to do. And so when there were famines in pre-modern history, the government's job was to make sure that surplus was distributed to the poor. Whether the government did its job or not was questionable, but no one would have debated otherwise. The successful governments built surplus and distributed it to poor people and helped poor people when they were starving as a result of famines. The rate of famine increased dramatically with more successful agriculture because famine was being used as a tool at first mostly by the British. And I'm, you know, it's not that they initiated the famines but they took advantage of them. And so it wasn't only Ireland but India and then and then later, I mean of course Stalin used famine to try to eliminate huge, huge numbers of peasants. 
Mao used famine for the same kind of reason. And those, the, the great famines were not, I mean, in a way the British are left off the hook because the famines with the most impressive numbers, if you're going to measure their horribleness by net deaths, I mean, no one even knows how many tens of millions of people died in the Soviet Union and in in China as a result of famines that were pretty much engineered by Stalin and Mao. Or again, the famines may have started as the result of unintended consequences of something else or as the result of environmental disasters, but the governments used then subsequently used them to eliminate perceived enemies. So it's funny, Mark Yassem, the philosopher, has said that there's n- all famines are now political, but and by which he meant they're not agricultural any longer. There's more than enough food to feed everyone in the world right now, this minute, and at every given minute. There's enough food and then some to feed everyone in the world. If your brother or sister somewhere else in the world is starving and you have the option to feed that person, you also have the moral necessity to feed that person. And if you don't, that's a political decision. That's not an agricultural decision. Well, so what are the political decisions that lead to 1 billion people in the world being underfed? The biggest political decision is to allow a world in which some people can eat 10 times a day if they want to, and other people have to worry about whether they can eat one time every 10 days. And that's a decision about income equality. That's a decision about the global north having spent 500 years stealing resources, money, people, et cetera, from the global south without adequately reimbursing them and and continuing to ignore the responsibility that we have to the people in the world that we have effectively impoverished. You know, I feel um, oddly quotey today, and I don't, I don't quite know why, but I'm pretty sure it's Franz Fanon who said, when you go to Europe and you see the incredible beauty that is there in Western Europe, and it's undeniable, the art, the architecture, the parks, the natural beauty that's been preserved and so on, what you're seeing is the result of the transfer of wealth from, from the colonies back to the north. You know, imagine the British Museum without the stuff that the Brits stole from other countries. There wouldn't be anything there to look at. Yeah. You know, I'm, I don't know how you turn this ship around. I, I think fairness is a, is a real question for, for all of us to answer. What do we owe the people who are really responsible for our for our national wealth. What do we owe the people who who gave their riches so that we could be wealthy? And that includes indigenous North and South Americans. That includes obviously Africans who were brought here as slaves. That includes all of the colonies of Western Europe that were exploited for the benefit of the global North. And you know, it is a, a lot of it is about agriculture. Not all of it, for sure, but a lot of it has been about agriculture. I mean, immigration in particular. I mean, I, I think so much of the coverage you see of, of the immigration story as it relates to the U.S.-Mexico border is all about, you know, what, are, what, are, what should we do about this? How should we handle this? How many people should be allowed to come in? But very infrequent is it that people talk about the root causes of why people are across the globe migrating you know from rural areas to urban areas from undeveloped countries to developed countries i mean there's 
a number of things worth talking about that, worth mentioning about that. One is that every time we've needed uh, more laborers than the border, the border to Mexico miraculously opens up in some way or another. But the other is that if you want to look at why there's a farm crisis and a hunger crisis to some extent in Mexico, you need look no further than NAFTA and and the the orchestration of NAFTA in the 90s, which basically said, well, wealth can now flow freely through the Americas. But what that basically meant was wealth was going to flow again from, from south to north. And it did, it has. And uh, the lives of millions of Mexican farmers were destroyed as a result of NAFTA. And many of those people came and took jobs in the United States. I want to transition a little bit and talk about the origins of monoculture farming. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about what drove the transition from small holding biodiverse farms to massive single crop operations. Really, how did that how did that evolve into what it is today? I mean, there's an argument that it started 500 years ago, 700 years ago, with the the closing of the commons, the consolidation of power by the nobility, especially in Western Europe, the development of cash crops and of, a, an, of an economy that was dependent on surplus and of and on growing more than you needed of a given crop, regardless of what the crop was. So if you could have made a decision that said, Lee, would we rather grow a variety of crops and make sure that everybody eats well, or would we rather grow a much smaller variety of crops and make sure that some number of people can profit from those the surplus of those crops. Well, the second choice was the de facto. In, in retrospect, that was the choice that was made. That's the choice that's still being made. If you, if you ask the question, and I like to ask this question, what is food for? Or what is agriculture for? And the logical answer is, it's to feed as many people well as we possibly can you might add while minimizing the impact on the environment, minimizing the impact on other species, treating labor well, you might add all of those things. But the primary answer is what's the point of agriculture? What's the point of food? The point of food is to feed as many people as well as we can. That's not what's happened. What's happened is the point of agriculture, the point of food has been to make money for people who own the land and the means of production around agriculture. So that again, arguably started even before the plague in Western Europe, but let's say in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, that that really started. But if we look to the 1900s and the post-Civil War era in the United States and monoculture and industrial agriculture were not invented in the United States, but really this system was perfected and there's air quotes around that perfected in the United States in the last 100, 150 years and, and then been exported to the rest of the world. If we look at that, that's really where monoculture came about and, and it was or was perfected and it was driven by, well, first by killing indigenous Americans and throwing them off their land, but then consolidating that land and, and redistributing it for free or nearly free to white European males who would then go settle that land, but big, big swaths, unmanageably big parcels of land that almost had to be or begged to be grown one crop at a time. And 
it was originally wheat and then later corn and soybeans. I mean, obviously there are many more crops, but the primary crops of the United States at this point are corn and soybeans. Um, and then that further accelerated by the development of the tractor, the development of hybridized seeds, and and you might even see it say especially the development. It's not especially because the tractor is just as important, but um, chemical fertilizer and chemical pesticides. I mean, and those are all concurrent, almost almost precisely concurrent. Um, inventions of the late 19th, early 20th century. And we would have seen monoculture take over even sooner, but wars got, you know, wars sort of got in the way. But after the, the Dust Bowl was a symptom of this process really accelerating. And the Dust Bowl is almost another good example of a political uh, famine, although it didn't really result in a full-blown famine. And arguably with the with the defeat of, of Hoover and the election of Roosevelt in 1932, you saw government actually starting to do its job. I mean, Roosevelt did help, and Congress did pass legislation that helped repair the Dust Bowl and helped some people recover. I mean, it wasn't enough, it wasn't soon enough and so on, but, but we didn't see millions of people die as a result of the Dust Bowl either. And that could have happened. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. For today's Farmer Spotlight, we have a sneak peek from our direct farm conference happening on May 4th. We invited Angela Britton from County Line Harvest to share her experience with transitioning their farm from selling wholesale to selling direct. Here's that preview. We wanted to offer CSA boxes to the public as a way to both safely access vegetables during the pandemic, but also to keep our employees working and as a way to make sure that the food that had been growing in the fields for months wouldn't be in vain. We linked up with local chefs and cafes that wanted to offer us their space, started selling our boxes to retailers who would then resell them to their community. Some of the best practices I have learned through overseeing this program are that one, buyers really do pay for convenience. Number two, having a smooth ordering system makes all the difference. Shout out to Barn to Door for making our CSA ordering super easy and simple, both for our customers and for us. It really is a game changer to have a website that just offers smooth systems for everyone. Listening to your buyers is so important because oftentimes they give you ideas that you hadn't thought of, which can really help you round out your offerings really nicely. One major feedback we were getting was that people wanted to know what was in the boxes. I think in the food world, we are used to people who shop at our booth every week and know what certain items are, but there was really a process of education on our part to let people know what these weird things were that we were putting in their box. So we started publishing weekly box lists on social and in our weekly newsletters, and people have responded very positively. If you want to hear more from Angela or other keynote speakers on May 4th, go to directfarmconference.com to register and attend for free. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. And what would you say have been the environmental and social consequences of monoculture farming? That's the that's the last question you get to ask, actually, because the answer to that is, you know, that's it. That's where we're at. You know, sometimes people say, 
if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing, which is an absurd, I'm sorry to bring it up because it's such a stupid question, but it would be end monoculture because monoculture is the root of everything that's that's going wrong in agriculture right now. And, and I think that's the sort of idea of the question is that, you know, maybe people don't understand why it's a bad idea. Farmers understand why it's a bad idea. I guess another way of asking it is like, why is biodiversity important within an ecosystem? <laughs> well, but the thing is that monoculture is bigger than just discouraging biodiversity. It's also encouraging, making necessary. It's not just encouraging. It's making necessary chemical fertilizer, chemical killers, which we call pesticides. And I think, you know, it's obvious, but everybody should take a moment to remember that the suffix side, C-I-D-E, means kill. So homicide, suicide, fratricide, pesticide. Pesticides were developed in, in parallel with chemical warfare, again, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And their job is to kill. And it's, it's really impossible to create a poison that you're going to spread on the land or in the air and expect it to only kill the critters or fungi or whatever herbs that you want it to kill. It's going to kill more broadly than that. And pesticides, you know, have their impact on us. And Rachel Carson wrote about this, what, 75 years ago, 70 yeah. years ago. So poisoning of the environment, loss of topsoil, uh, depletion of resources, climate change, you know, just the chemical just the production of chemical fertilizer alone is 2% of the total of greenhouse gases. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it's just that one thing. If you integrate all of the, all of the functions of monoculture, of industrial agriculture, because they're pretty much synonymous, you have the second leading, arguably first, but we can concede second, leading cause of greenhouse gas production in the in the world is industrial agriculture. So there's that. And now we haven't even talked, we've talked for half an hour and we haven't even mentioned sort of arguably the biggest consequence of industrial agriculture today, which is a public health crisis that directly results in the death of more than a million people in the United States alone every year. The biggest killer in the United States is chronic disease, way, way bigger than COVID, even at COVID's worst. And the biggest driver of chronic disease is bad diet. And the reason we have bad diet is monoculture. So if you're saying what are the consequences of monoculture, you have to throw in one of the biggest public health crises ever into that mix. Um, so it's a lot. Well, yeah, let's transition to that because I think, you know, it's clear our health is severely compromised in no small part by the hyper-processed foods that you're mentioning junk food. So what are these products kind of define what we mean by ultra processed or hyper processed and, and how do they come to sort of sit at the center of our diets? You mentioned monoculture. Um, but I'm also interested in like why we like them so damn much. Why do we keep picking them up? I mean, there, there are biological reasons for that, that you describe in the book. Well, one question at a time. So do you want to address <laughs> why we like them so much? You can take it in any order you like. Well, the thing is, I'll forget the questions. So you come back to whatever we're missing. I mean, we like them. We are hardwired to 
eat salt, we're hardwired to seek sweet foods, we're hardwired to look for fatty foods, but that is our, as foragers, those are all desirable traits. We will evolve out of that, out of those traits if we live long enough. I don't mean we as individuals, I mean we as a species, but that's not happening fast enough. We don't need to eat. If you're, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're a forager, you come across a bush of berries, you are going to eat those berries until you get sick, until you can't eat another one, because you're hardwired to do that and you don't know where your food is coming from tomorrow. The food engineers use those tendencies, our tendency to eat as much salt as we can, as much sugar as we can, as many fats as we can. Fats are great because they're super high calories. And we used to have a problem getting as many calories as we wanted. The, the triumph of agriculture is to give us all the calories we could possibly want. The tragedy of agriculture is that it gives food marketers the incentive to get us to eat more calories than we need more calories than are good for us and in forms that are bad for actively bad for us. So food is engineered to get us to eat as much of it as we can. Food, the foods that are made to do that are largely made as the result of as the result of monoculture, corn and soybeans being our leading crops, they are also our leading ingredients, corn and soybeans and sugar, much of which is made from corn um in the form of high fructose corn syrup but it's not that high fructose corn syrup itself is any worse than sugar it's just that it increased the supply and therefore increased our consumption um all of this combines to cause the chronic disease that's making us ill and and you know i want to be clear that it's not it's, it's that it's making us ill it's not that it's making us obese obesity is a symptom but you can be sick. You can be sick from overeating or from eating the wrong kind of calories without being obese, and you can be obese without being sick. So, you know, obesity is it's the problem is not that America is fat. The problem is that um, America is fat because we have a bad diet, and we're also sick because we have a bad diet. So it's it's um, it's not that the obesity is the problem. Obesity is the symptom a symptom. You know, a lot of people have this ongoing discussion about how to change eating habits, right? Looking at it as kind of a behavioral engineering problem. The blue zones sort of model talks a lot about that, that it's about a series of nudges and that leads you to make the right choice as opposed to you relying on willpower, let's say. Here's how we know that's wrong. 60% of the calories in the United States today are in the form of ultra processed foods. Ultra processed foods make us sick. If you look up the definition of food in the dictionary, it'll say a substance that provides nourishment. That doesn't tell us much, but if you look up nourishment, it says nourishment is something that makes you grow healthy. So 60% of the calories in our diet don't make us grow healthy. In fact, they make us grow sicker. And so they're closer in definition, dictionary definition, to poison than they are to food. Someone's eating that 60%. Either all of us are eating precisely 60%, or some of us are eating less than 60%, and some of us are eating more than 60%, which of course is, is what's true. Um, it could be that 60% of us are eating 100% of that of those calories, but it's not that. It's spread out. And in fact, the 
the sort of notion that it's poor people that are eating junk food, it's really not. I mean, there if 60% of the calories are junk food, then way more than the 10 or 20% of the population that qualifies as poor of us are eating some portion of our diet in the form of ultra-processed foods that are, that are bad for us. So it's not just about behavior change because that 60% is out there. And if we all decided to eat well en masse tomorrow, there's only 40% enough well calories for us to eat. We would go hungry, in fact. So the system is such that the calories that are made available to us are the majority of them are making us sick. So it's not just a matter of willpower. Of course, for those of us with more time and more money and better education and a lot of quote unquote willpower can make the decision to eat better and we can afford to do that and we can pursue that as one of our I want to say hobbies, but avocations, or even one of our vocations. It's our job to eat well. We do that. But not everybody can do that. And in fact, there aren't enough calories, even if everybody did have the ability to do that. There aren't enough available calories comprising good, real, close to natural food. So that's an agricultural question. Agriculture is political. It's decided by policy. And what's available in the market today is decided by policy or lack of policy. And willpower can change that, but actually we're better off exercising that willpower, not in changing our diet, but in changing the political system or in changing the policy. Well, so when listening to you just now and reading your book, I was reminded of a Homer Simpson quote about alcohol that might also apply to agriculture. I just saw that today. It, yes. It's it's the cause of and the solution to all our problems. And it seems pretty clear we're we're not going to willingly return to a hunter gather existence. And so the question becomes how do we take this broken thing we call farming and create something that bolsters health in us and our communities and in our landscapes. Right. So how do we do that? I don't know. But we need to move in that direction. And in the in the course of not you know I've learned a lot since I finished, I finished writing Animal Vegetable Junk more than a year ago. And I've learned a lot since then. And I've learned a lot in the, you know, dozens of podcasts and interviews that I've done, like, like this one, since then. And someone really smart said to me, you build a road by starting to walk on it. And I think, you know, we can't see the end of the road towards a better food system, or a better society. But we can see the first steps. And I think it's important to take the first steps and to see where they lead us and then to say, okay, what are the next steps? So I can, I have my pet five first steps that I can easily outline. I wouldn't even say that they're necessarily the right first steps, but they're part, they're definitely part of the conversation. And if I had my druthers, they're the first steps I would take, but I'd listen to arguments that there are other first steps, the important thing is we have to do something. We have to move towards a better food system or we're never going to get. We don't need to see the end in order to start. And we need to start. You write that the global food system has become sustainable and equitable for all. Where do you see that happening? And why is the U.S. likely to become a late adopter of these better practices? You mentioned you mentioned a, town, a city in Brazil as being one particular example of something that you're encouraged by. 
Brazil had a, a very active pro-food workers movement and even pro-food government for a while, guaranteed adequate nutrition to every citizen, established restaurants where, with a sliding scale where 100,000 people a day were fed with good food that they can afford, did a, did a land reform program that gave away as much land as the country had given away in its entire previous history over the course of just a few years, established organic farms, uh, subsidized organic farms, subsidized family farming, subsidized the use of that food in school systems and elsewhere. It did great work. Then the government changed and all of that stuff started to fall apart. So I think what that shows is that if there's a popular movement that supports better food, we'd better be a part of that popular movement and we'd better make sure that our representatives are behind that popular movement because when they're not, it's really hard to make change. So right now, the most interesting thing I think in food is happening in Andhra Pradesh, in, which is a state in India. India has big states, it's like 60 million people, um, mostly farmers. And what happens there is, uh, what is happening there is there are, uh, the farmers are mostly in small villages, thousand people or less. And people are going from village to village, teaching their fellow farmers how to farm without pesticides using natural uh, natural fertilizer, natural methods of, of increasing yield, of, of polycropping, the opposite of monoculture, and so on. And the government is supporting that. So the number of farmers in this program now is probably close to a million. It was in excess of 600,000 when I finished writing the book. It's growing really fast. And the predictions are that almost every farmer in the state, and again, we're talking tens of millions of people, will be farming naturally, for want of a better word, without chemical fertilizer, without chemical pesticides by 2030. So that, again, if the government stops supporting it, you need a popular movement to make sure that still happens. But that's an example of the kind of things that can move, move agriculture forward. Corporate agriculture is becoming increasingly mechanized and technology obsessed. Um, people like Bill Gates have this vision for farming without farmers. And yet peasant farmers are still producing most of the world's food. I think it's like 70% or something like that. What will or should the future of farming look like? Do you envision like a, a peasant farmer future or do you envision some sort of hybrid of that and GMOs, CRISPR technology? What do you see? Well, I think there's no reason to ignore good technology. I mean, there isn't a farmer in the world who doesn't want a small tractor, at least. We have to, we have to measure the impact of the tools that are used in farming and decide which ones are more harmful than they're worth. GMOs at, up until now have been more harmful than they're worth. The tractor up until now has been more harmful than it's worth, but we can certainly envision a better tractor that is more beneficial than it is harmful. So of course we integrate technology into farming. I think the future is, again, I'm not claiming to know. I'd like, I think that I know what would be good to do in the next few years. I don't claim to know what things are gonna look like in 50 years. No one can predict anything like that. Anyone who says they can is lying. But I think there'll be more farms. I like to think that we'd restore dignity to farming. I'd like to think that no one owns more than 500 acres or whatever kind of limit we want to put on on land use. I'd like to think that land is restored to the people who were shut out of the great land giveaways of the 19th and 20th centuries. 
I might have said this already, but I'd really like to see dignity restored to farming. There are a lot of people who would like to and would farm and would do it well, given the opportunity. But there's very little opportunity for someone with no money, and especially someone saddled with student debt, which so many young people are now, there's very little opportunity for people to even buy five acres in most of this country and start farming, let alone 50 acres, which is probably a more realistic and viable number, or 500 acres, which, you know, on which you can build a really beautiful, multifunctioning, several family, several generation kind of farm. So few of those exist as even models that it's hard to point people to them and to say, look, what a great job this group of farms is doing. There aren't even enough of them for us to all visit, really. Maybe there's no ideal farm, but you do cite one farm in the book that you think is a particularly um, strong example of maybe what you're talking about is Full Belly Farms. What did you see when you visited there? Well, Full Belly is a 500 acre farm. Mm-hmm. They're on their third generation of you know, they were hippies or whatever. They were 60s people. Um, they're on their third generation of, of farmers. It's a it's a couple of families. They do every single thing right. They tick every single box. They, they prioritize soil health. They prioritize biodiversity. Needless to say, they don't use chemical fertilizer, chemical pesticides. They try, I'm not sure whether they're successful at this point or not, but they try to be completely closed loop, not bring in any compost, but make all of their own soil amendments, they do bring in fuel, of course. So they're not closed in that sense. They're not a horse-driven farm or an entirely solar-driven farm. They do rely on solar power. They have full, many full-time employees who receive decent wages and benefits. I mean, as I said, they tick every box. The problem is they're almost unique. There might be a dozen farms like that in the country, although if there are, I don't know them. And to make a difference, we'd need to see thousands of farms. I mean, they make a difference in their community. Don't get me wrong. To look at national impact, we should be looking at how do we create 500, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 farms like Full Belly? That's one answer to your question about how do we change the future of farming is creating medium, what are considered medium-sized farms, say 50 to 500 acres run by families, one or more family, one or more generations that do most things right and supply food to their communities. Most of this country, the populated parts especially, are well-watered and have enough resources, have enough soil to provide at least 50% of their own, of their own food. Um, even the Northeast, which is you know, climate-wise, probably the most disadvantaged populated part of the country. I mean, I'm not counting Montana, but not that many people live in Montana, so it's not that big an issue. How do we get those kinds of farms that can support their regions? And, you know, the the long-term answer is land reform. And that's not a short-term answer because I don't think it's happening anytime soon, but it's a discussion worth having, and it's going to have to happen at some point. Epicurious recently announced that um, they were going to exclude beef from any future recipes. Um, does that make sense to you? I mean, we're having this debate over what we grow, what we eat. Uh, you know, what do the ingredients of a good diet in the 21st century look like to you? What should we be eating more of, less of? Well, those are two separate questions. Do I think Epicurious made a good decision? I think there are probably enough beef recipes in the world. If someone comes up with 
some really awesome beef recipe that no one's thought of before, I'd be kind of surprised. So I don't think we're losing much by Epicurious not producing beef recipes anymore. As to how we should eat, yeah, we should be eating fewer animal products. Everyone knows that. Everyone except for people with a vested interest in us eating animal products at our current level, everyone except for those people knows and understands that we should be eating less meat. And although it is a self-selecting audience, if I go speak to back in the day when I made public appearances, you know, if I go speak to an audience of 200 or 500 or even a thousand people and I say, who's eating less meat than they were 10 years ago, everybody raises their hand, except for a couple of contrarians, everybody raises their hand. Because everybody, even people who say, oh yeah, I'm a big meat eater, even those people are eating less meat than they were. 10 years ago, because everybody knows that we should be eating fewer animal products. From an environmental perspective, from an animal welfare perspective, from a public health perspective, from a personal health perspective, it all makes sense to eat fewer animal products. So that's, you know, that's an important thing. Junk food is even more important. I mean, if, if you want to see a revolution in agriculture, if you want to see a revolution in public health, if you want our own health, personal health, to start recovering, if you want to see our longevity start to increase again rather than decrease, we need to be eating fewer ultra-processed foods. That's also a no-brainer. I mean, the thing about diet is that when you say we should all be eating a better diet, the image that falls into everybody's mind is pretty much the same. We know what that means. We don't need to say again what that means. The trick is how do you get there? And you can't get there. We had this, you know, we talked about this 10 or 15 minutes ago. You can't get there by willpower alone. You have to get there through changes in policy, changes in the way we farm, produce, process, market, and sell food. I read somewhere that you think this is your most important work. Is that accurate? Does that sound like something you might have said? <laughs> I'm sure I said it. I'm not probably not the person who's going to make that judgment or I don't even know if my work is important enough for anyone to care what my most important work is, but others will make that judgment. I mean, I acknowledge that how to cook everything is, you know, I acknowledge, I, I like to think how to cook everything is really important and was a great piece of work. I know how hard I worked on this and how, how hard I thought about things and how important I think it is. I first published how to cook everything in 1998. That's 23 years ago. A lot's changed since then. This is what I'm working on now. It's certainly the most important work that I'm doing now. You know, I, there's so many books that are out and available on how broken our food system is. And so I've read a lot of those books and I'm kind of familiar with a lot of the terrain. And, and I will assert that, that I think this book stands out for me as being a particularly strong presentation of sort of the history of agriculture and food. And it's really impressive in that sense. But for you, you're familiar with the same, that same shelf of books on our broken food system. What, what compelled you to want to sort of add to the literature there? What were you bringing to the conversation that you thought was essential? Well, thanks for saying that, Ben, first of all. Um, if there are three sections of, of this book, roughly past, present, and future, the present is the part that's about our broken food system, and it's the shortest part of the book, because I felt like that had been said adequately by many people. And we, most of us know this story. Although, you know, I will point out that in the course of this conversation, you chose to focus on, or you often chose to focus on the present because it still needs to be said. 
the question of what's wrong with monoculture is very much a present question. And I think to talk about what's wrong with our food system sort of sounds like, oh, there's a lot of fast food and we're kind of getting fat and da 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 da, da. And that's all true. But if you say, if you tie the, the present to agriculture, you're making a, a link that isn't often made in today's in today's media. And if you're saying the problem is not willpower, personal behavior, making changes in our lives, you know, the whole sort of Michelle Obama kind of mantra, but the problem is what are we giving people to eat? What are we supplying? That is a bit of a different analysis in of the present. And and that analysis, my analysis, is rooted in the past. And it's and I think that, you know, the very first thing you and I talked about was how did how did we get here? And we didn't start, again, your choice, because you figured this out, because you get it. We didn't start in 1950. You know, we started in 1250 or whenever it was we started. And and how to move how we moved forward is a big part of the story of animal vegetable junk, the decisions that were made. And I think it's important to say, here's what's happened in history. Here's where it got us. How do we move forward? And and seeing how decisions were made or decisions were allowed to be made by us not exercising our collective power has led us to a place where we are really destroying ourselves. It doesn't mean that we knew everything 200 years ago and we should have made a different decision. We might have made different decisions, but we, and it's not us, obviously, we didn't make different decisions, but we also didn't have the information then that we have now. Now we have all the information that's in this book and in the whole shelf of books you're talking about, and in a thousand other books that explain this in different ways from different perspectives, and that cover the gamut from climate change to income inequality to race and gender uh, discrimination, on and on and on down the line. We see these things in a better light than we've ever seen them before. How do we make decisions moving forward? And the last third of Animal Vegetable Junk, or the last whatever, several chapters, is about how we move forward. And that, I think, also distinguishes the book, or I like to, to think that distinguishes the book. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it was a really great conversation, Ben. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Go buy Animal Vegetable Junk at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Use the coupon code MAYPOD, that's M-A-Y-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.